0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Matthias Kamm, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show.
1: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley.
0: Hello, and welcome to episode 474 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Django Wexler. He's the author of more than a dozen fantasy novels, including The Thousand Names, Ashes of the Sun, and The Ship of Smoke and Steel. And he's also written two books set in the world of the collectible card game, Magic the Gathering. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novella, Hard Reboot. And now here's our interview with Django Wexler. All right, so we're here with Django Wexler. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so your new novella is called Hard Reboot.
2: So how'd that come about?
1: Hard reboot. It's actually kind of an interesting story. Um, so, last year or towards the beginning of of twenty twenty, we did a Kickstarter campaign for a new anthology called Silk and Steel, um, and there's a there's a long story associated with that, but it boils down to there was uh, a fan art image of a sort of princess and a swordswoman on Twitter that a bunch of people thought was really cool. And they were like, Oh, I kind of want to write that story now. And me and a friend of mine, uh, Jennifer Mace, um, were like, a lot of these people who've said that are professional writers. So we, we emailed them and we were like, how serious are you guys about this? Mm. And enough of them said that they were serious that we thought we could put an anthology together. So I got, Um, a uh, friend of mine um, who is a professional editor, Janine Southard, and uh, I had worked with her on some anthologies before. And I said, hey, do you want to, well, first we just hit her up for advice, but then she was clearly interested. So we were like, okay, let's do this project. And so we did a Kickstarter for it. And so it was an anthology of sort of very loosely defined princess X, swordswoman short stories. So, and basically just meaning a sort of fluffy feminine character and a more hard-nosed sort of fighting character in a romantic relationship uh, to women. Um, and uh, it was really successful. Yeah. Uh, you know, we sold a bunch of copies on Kickstarter. We raised, you know, $50,000, which was blew me away. Um, and we got, a bunch of cool art, and that project went really well. Um, and then the time came for me to write my story, and I had been kind of uh, thinking about it while I was over Christmas break, and I was kind of away from my computers, and I couldn't do any real writing. Um, and then I got back, and I'm like, all right, I'm psyched. And I started writing the story, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And in a kind of rarity for me, it went really quickly. So over the course of about eight days, I wrote this whole story, but it was about Four or five times too long, it came out over 30,000 words instead of Hmm. 7,000. And so I was like, we can never fit this in the anthology. So I wrote another story for Silk and Steel um, because I looked at cutting this one down and I was like, there's just no way without ruining it. Um, so I wrote a different story for Silk and Steel, and then I had this one and I sent it to my agent and I said, you know, you think we can sell this somewhere? And he took it to Tor.com and they were happy to uh to take it. So that that's how we got here. Um it's a it's an interesting roundabout route. A lot of most of my work is much more straightforward, like someone asked me to write a thing and I just write it.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because, you know, there didn't used to be that many, you know, you don't have to go back too many years before there just weren't very many markets for novellas. You know, some of the magazines would publish one occasionally, but
1: yeah, there's really been more opportunities. Uh, well, recently. Tor.com has done amazing work um, in the novella space. And it's really been one of my ambitions to write for them uh, a novella for them someday. Cause there's just been so many, you know, from Martha Wells murder bot and, uh, Sean Maguire's um, wayward children series and, uh, stuff fewer people have heard of. I, I, there's a great one called the Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday, which I love and just on and on there's, there's all these great novellas that they've done. Um, and they've just been great in that space, but yeah, it's eBooks basically, you know, the, the problem is that you can't price a real book at two 99. And have bookstores stock it. It's just not worth their time. And so, and conversely, you can't price a novella at twelve dollars and expect to sell all that many copies. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, the the availability of eBooks has just sort of changed the basic economics of it to make this possible.
2: Because you've published a couple of novellas previously, right?
1: Just one. I published uh, a Shadow Campaigns novella um called The Shadow of Elysium that sort of comes between two of the books in my Shadow Campaign series um and that was through uh Ace Rock who publishes the the Shadow Campaign series um and it was electronic only i guess i've also published the John Golden novellas which i did as um uh small press self pub thing um those are, it in in a way i kind of regret that actually because i think with some some editing, I would love to have sold those to Tor and I think they would have been a good fit, but I published them way back in the day before Tor.com actually existed. Um so uh but you can get them on Amazon still.
2: Yeah, I was just looking at your website and and there's the four novellas listed there. Yeah. Um, because i I love you know I love short stories and I love novellas, and i 've heard a lot of people suggest that the novella is really the perfect length for a science fiction story because there's enough room for you to, to do world building, but then it 's short enough that you don't have to add any subplots uh, yes
1: i've i've heard many people say that I think David Brin wrote a whole thing about how that is because it's an it's enough space to explore a science fictional concept, which can be very hard in a short story um but it doesn't kind of overstay its welcome. I think of a novella basically, I mean, people, there are different definitions of where a novella ends and novel begins, but I think of a novella as the sort of longest story that a, a relatively normal person can read in one go, <laughs> certainly that I can read in one go. Um, anything longer than a typical novella, I'm going to need you know, several reading sessions, but a good novella I can sort of power through in one sitting.
2: Yeah, I mean, because I really liked growing up. This there were a lot of in the '60s and '70s there were a lot of sort of sixty thousand word novels, science mm-hmm. fiction novels that were published. And I really like the novel where you can get up in the morning and start reading a book and then be done by dinner time. Uh, that's yeah. just sort of the
1: perfect length for me. It, it, I mean, I have a lot of friends who can do that with a regular length novel, but like <laughs> that's to me that's like unusual. <laughs> I'm not that fast.
2: Yeah. So you say that it was unusual that you wrote this in eight days. Kind of why do you think that this story in particular went so fast?
1: Um, I think because, I mean, part of, you know, it was an idea that came to me sort of very suddenly, which is not all that normal. Usually I, I am kind of a bang it out and carefully outline things kind of guy. Um, and then I feel like I just written half of it in my head because it it was a very sort of strongly living in my brain sort of idea. Um, and I was was not somewhere where I could really, uh, you know, start writing an outline. So when I got back, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to get this down. And it went, you know, I'm a pretty fast drafter normally, but this was even faster than normal.
2: Did you know, I mean, sort of what attracted me to this book was the giant robots fighting on the cover. Mm -hmm. Did you know, like, how at what stage in the creative process did the giant robots enter the picture?
1: Oh, that was definitely part of the initial concept. Um, I feel like my initial concept for this book was basically, um, we had talked about, when we were planning the anthology, the different things that could be meant by Swordswoman, since we we didn't want to be, like, really strict with it. And so they were like, you know, it could be... Someone who fights with a gun or, you know, who does duels with a magical flute um, or which is one of the stories, actually, um, or a giant robot pilot. And I was like, all right, I'm definitely doing a giant robot pilot because, you know, I'm an anime guy and I love giant robot stuff. Um, So that was kind of the first seed of it. And then I feel like the second part was this idea of a a very old and mostly kind of junk heap earth um, as the setting um, i don't actually know where that came from um, or what inspired that i mean i can i can talk about some other books that that have that kind of setting but i'm not sure which one sort of pinged it to me but um, those two things were definitely the kind of origins of this novel
2: yeah i mean one thing with the the junk heap earth that's interesting is that they're sort of um computer viruses have run amok. And so there's basically Mm -hmm. no internet uh, on earth in the future because any, any sort of network thing gets instantly overrun with viruses. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to talk about like how did that, or kind of what attracted you to that idea?
1: I think that came, that specific thing came from just reading about um, the kind of evolution of modern malware and, you know, the You know, my former life is as a software developer. So, um, I have a CS degree, and you know, I've been studying computer stuff since the old days. And I remember, uh, you know, for some definitions of the old days, obviously, you know, I'm 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 talking about like the late 1990s here. Uh, I yeah, and the fact that that's the old days, of course, now makes me feel very old. Um, (laughs) But uh, but I remember when the transition from, there was a period where you could, you know, configure a new computer and plug it into the internet and everything would be fine. And um, in the late 1990s, over the course of a couple of years, a bunch of really successful Windows viruses that just kind of scanned at random for IP addresses looking for exploitable hosts, made it so that if you plugged an unpatched, you know, Windows 98 install into the internet, it would be guaranteed to be infected within minutes. Um, and that process has only sort of continued, right? So it's like the atmosphere outside our carefully protected bunkers has just gotten more and more toxic in terms of malware. Um, and there's always this kind of, Ongoing arms race between offense and defense um, that uh you know the the people who write malware and the various technologies that use it sort of get ahead for a while and then you know some new technologies invented for encapsulation or whatever and they knock it back for a while and so the idea was sort of an environment where the the technological mix had tipped the advantage permanently to offense that there You know, that these things were uh, autonomously evolving kind of genetic algorithm produced things then. And nanotechnology had made the hardware, you know, completely ubiquitous and just all this stuff was just out there and there was no way to get rid of it.
2: It was kind of making me think of in, in Dune how Frank Herbert just wanted a future without A.I., and so yeah. he invented this backstory of how there had been this AI uprising. And so now all AI, all thinking machines are banned. And I was wondering if there was anything like similar going on here where you just, you, you wanted a story where without the network stuff kind of getting well, in the way of the story.
1: It's hard because it's funny. I, I love reading science fiction and I'm not a stickler for like super accuracy when I read science fiction. Um, but when I try to write science fiction, I have a hard time doing things that i know feel wrong um and one of the ways that manifests is a lot of the kind of like big space opera tropes like giant robots or like manned fighters or whatever you know don't make any real sense because you see a lot of these these space operas and it's very clear that we have progressed along the control of physical universe axis but not at all along the like computation axis. Um, Oftentimes, especially if they were written, you know, decades ago, they are now behind where we are now. Um, And so uh, it just feels wrong to me. And so a lot of my sort of space opera science fiction uh, ideas have some sort of conceit where they're, isn't just going to be everything being computerized. Cause I feel like if you really want to take a kind of realistic is the wrong word, cause this is not hard science fiction, but like if your far future doesn't look like something like Ian Banks, uh, culture books, or like, you know, Greg Egan's diaspora, or, um, you know, even Werner Vinge's, uh, fire upon the deep. And these are all books where like, you know, People or you know computer minds or people transferred into computers are the primary form of sentience. Um, You kind of have to explain why, because you know it's it's going to be hard to get there.
2: I was actually going to bring this up later, but since you mentioned it, I I also read your short story "The End of the War," which is a science fiction story that appeared in Asimov's Mm -hmm. magazine, and that does have human piloted ship, you know, Mm -hmm. like ships in the future where, you know, you would think that there would be the kind of computation you're talking about. So that was one of the questions I had about that story is like, is that just a, um, you know, you just need human characters for a story. So we kind of hand wave that a little bit, or do you think that there really would be humans piloting the kinds of ships
1: in, in this story? I mean, that's interesting. So the premise of that story is that you have one human in a sort of robotic cocoon, essentially, on legs. And they create and command a vast force of little robots that do the actual fighting. Um, And, you know, that certainly seems more realistic than the sort of Star Wars, you know, every fighter has a, a manned pilot in it. Um, but also even that, I think, only works because, you know, the civilizations we're looking at in that story are crippled, right? These are the the sort of blasted remnants of high tech civilizations who are kind of desperately trying to play out this war, even though they've destroyed their respective planets. Um, and so this is just kind of the best they can come up with. Uh, it's, it doesn't necessarily imply that it's. The cutting edge of technology. And that I think is, is something that, that we see in, um, in hard reboot as well, is that like one of the ways to get around, you know, well, if the technology is so good, why don't we XYZ is just to make it clear that what you're looking at is not the cutting edge of technology as, you know, most people's experience in life is not.
2: I mean I wanted to ask you about I mean speaking of the cutting edge of technology so the the main character in Hard Reboot is named Kaz and she's from mm-hmm. a place called Sentinel which mm-hmm. is a semi it seems sort of semi technological utopian kind of place mm-hmm. um how much um how much sort of world building did you do about Sentinel for this for this novella because it seems pretty well developed
1: Not as much not that much I mean I'm a big proponent of doing world building Sort of as and when necessary. Um, I don't tend to put in a lot of work into world building that doesn't end up on the page. You know, some, because there's always some sort of below the surface stuff that's needed for consistency, um, but not a ton. So there's not much more than you see in the story. You know, there's you you may have to like piece together a few references to for what life is like on Sentinel, but yeah, it's basically the idea is that that's a place where, if not a utopia, then at least the technology exists that everyone is basically really comfortable. Um, they live a long time. They don't really have diseases. They have completely ubiquitous networking. Um, so and the, it's why Earth is such a shock to Cass where, you know, basically since computers don't work, everything is kind of a disaster.
2: Right. And the, sort of the big drawback for her on Sentinel is that there's this prejudice against third waivers. So, so mm-hmm. everyone from this society has like their, their last name basically is a number, either one, two or three. Could you mm-hmm. talk about talk about that idea?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, unfortunately, Class prejudice and hierarchy are kind of built into human society, and you can certainly imagine a future society without it. But kind of part of what I wanted to do in Hard Reboot is is talk about that, um, and I didn't want to just use you know a, something we have today, you know, race or whatever. I, you know, I don't want to get into that um, in this future society, so. Basically, it comes down to when your ancestors emigrated from Earth, that all the colonies were set up originally by these like hardscrabble, slightly crazy pioneers and reclusive billionaires who went out and a bunch of them failed and died. But like a lot of them, the ones who succeeded became the kind of lords of these colonies. Um, And then once they were established, a bunch of the second wave people kind of Bought their way in to the now successful colonies and they became the kind of upper classes. And then, somewhat later, the earth went into its kind of final terminal dive, and the, the hordes of refugees that followed and were kind of let in very reluctantly by the colonies became their lower classes. Um, but I mean, as Cass finds out, even the lower classes of their colonies have it pretty good compared to the people on earth um you know it's it's this kind of i don't know i don't want to say it's not allegorical because you can't defend an allegory like that but it's a kind of mindset thing that's you know easy to to imagine today
2: Right. And we're told that cast, you know, in this networked society, that they have a sort of social media overlay over every, mm-hmm. all of their social interactions. So it tells you, like, this person doesn't want to be talked to, this person would be interested in talking about this, this person's romantic preferences are this. Do yes. you see that as a utopian element or a
1: dystopian element? I see it as a utopian element, um, for sure. I think it's one of those things that if it existed and we were all used to it, people would complain about constantly. Um, but if they were forced to live without it, people would have a fit, right? And I feel like that's true of a lot of elements of our modern society that, like we, we complain about and worry about, but we also would not give up. You know, television, social media, email.
2: Right, because it seems like at least as much as the story is about giant robots, it's also just about kind of the the disconnect between people who are on the Internet and people who are not on the Internet or, you know, Something what those like two that. worlds are like.
1: You know, again, I, I shy away from allegory because, you know, I really don't want to write a story that's like, oh, well, you know, you live in the United States where even the poorest of our people are better off than even than people in other countries, because that's like not true, and then you don't want to get into that. Um, but it's more about the recognition that there are many kinds of hierarchies. Um, and that being at the bottom of your local status hierarchy always feels bad to the person involved, but also doesn't necessarily mean that you are badly off compared to someone else if that makes any sense who is kind of in a different context um cuz it's not about who is kind of worse off in an absolute sense right like you know from the point of view of any person today cass is doing great you know she has Long life and no diseases and cures for cancer and you know all kinds of computing resources we can only imagine. But when you are sort of embedded in a hierarchy which puts you firmly at the bottom, um, that you're the sort of lowly assistant professor who does all the grunt work and gets none of the credit by virtue of your social caste, then that feels bad. No matter you know how in objective terms, how good your life is. And it, it's that kind of contradiction.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the deta- one of the scenes that really struck me is there's this part where Cass is walking down the street on on old Earth where nothing's networked. And she kind of has this sudden realization that all these people are actually looking at her where, uh, and paying attention to her as she walks by, whereas she's so used to everyone being, splitting their attention with yeah. the, all the internet stuff that they're not even really paying attention to their local surroundings. And I really felt that because, you know, I, I just more and more I'm surrounded by people who are carrying on a text message conversation on their phone yeah. uh, at the same time that they're, you know, talking to me.
1: I mean, I wonder if it would be distracting if you were to go back in time to 1900, if it would feel weird that people are paying more attention um, or maybe not. You know, there's all these there's a there's a meme I like where people you know, someone's complaining about how everyone today is into their phones and they don't talk to anyone. And there's a photograph from around 1900 of a train car and every single person has a newspaper up.
2: Yeah. Right? I've seen that,
1: yeah, And so I'm not sure that people actually change that much, but certainly the outward signifiers of our behavior change. Um, I also think in, in Cass's society, I forget if I actually go into this in the story, um, you know if you if everyone is wearing the equivalent of an augmented reality glasses at all times you don't have to f- visibly pay attention to someone to look at them or to to be curious about them and so politeness dictates that you never visibly pay attention to anyone even though even if you're really like who is that freak and you're like running a search on them or whatever everything is now privately in your own head
2: I mean, one of the things I always like in science fiction is when things that we do now that we consider normal are, are viewed as uh, like primitive or, or or something in the mm-hmm. in the future. And so, I, I really liked this detail where uh, Cass thinks, of course, extensive unreadable blink-to-agree contracts were still considered binding here on old Earth, junk heap of yes. the empires. So, yeah. is, is there is there hope for a future of no um, you know hundred page hundred
1: really... page terms of service agreements? I it's I really hope so, but we're going to have to really rethink – that's one of those things that, like, we as a society have to rethink, that we have this big emphasis on disclosure as being all-important, um, that it's okay for a company to do anything as long as they disclose that they're doing it. Um, and... I think we will reach a point where that's not good enough anymore because so many things have to be disclosed that nothing is disclosed. Is it really disclosed if you put it in on page fifty-four of a hundred and twelve-page document that no one reads? Um, have you really, in a real sense, disclosed anything? And you know, I think we're going to have to have a reckoning with that at some point because it's only getting worse someone tried to count up the number of pages you'd have to read to like, if you technically did all the reading of contracts that you were supposed to do. And it's astronomical, just like every website has, you know, Oh yeah, here's our privacy policy. Um,
2: Yeah. I think it was like, you'd have to spend three months out of the year doing that. It was something like that. I think. Yeah.
1: Um, And especially the idea combined with that, the ideas of click through contracts or um, shrink wrap agreements, where just by using the product, you have implicitly agreed to some set of things, I think are like kind of inherently abusive. It would not shock me if those were eventually banned. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, it seems like in Casa Society, and maybe in hours eventually, um, you'll have some sort of AI agent that reads the contract for you and kind of gives you the bullet points.
1: Yes. Um, I think Casa Society probably also has a level of supervision that we would consider intrusive. um, Because I think we will start to see that kind of supervision be made less onerous by technology. Um, And I don't know if this is a, you know, dystopian or utopian thing (laughs) to be honest, but it's definitely going to happen because people say that they object to being spied on or supervised, but what they really object to is being inconvenienced. Um, And so as the technology makes it possible to do that kind of stuff sort of silently and without bothering the majority of users, it becomes more and more common. Yeah.
2: I really liked this line where you say... um if there was an afterlife cast had always hoped it had a decent network, (laughs) which I think is really interesting because, you know, um, sort of our classical or traditional notions of heaven is just like, Oh, I'm not cold and I have enough to eat. And that was sort of like, you know, as uh, more more than anyone at the time could have ever hoped for, but, but it's like now I have
1: for a medieval peasant.
2: Yeah. But it's like, now I have AC and, um, you know, and food's pretty affordable and stuff. And so like, Actually, aside from not dying, uh, a traditional afterlife doesn't really seem all that appealing because, yeah, I'd be leaving behind, I mean, you know, like, do they have Netflix and, and call video exactly. games like, and all Exactly. Like, what are
1: you going to do? Um, yeah, it's it's an open question, right? Like, would you go to heaven if they don't have Wi-Fi? Uh, yeah,
2: so <laughs> would, you, would you? I, I mean, because I feel like I would. Well, That's my initial impression, uh, aside again from the immortality thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think in many ways it speaks to the attractiveness of sort of visions of the afterlife that are technological, the sort of like upload your brain to a computer and live forever in the matrix style of afterlife, which is, you know, a lot of sci-fi presents this as, as an alternative, um, and if that was an option i'd do it for sure <laughs> uh, because i think that seems more like you know heaven to us now than harps and clouds yeah
2: so so i mentioned to you over email that yeah i read hard reboot and then i also read your short stories the end of the war real and amara kell's rules for tie pilot survival parentheses probably yeah. Um, which, which seemed to me, you know, the most science fictional of the stuff. You know, most of your work is is fantasy, and mm-hmm. um, just in the interest of time, I thought maybe I would just just sort of focus on the science fiction stuff. But is that pretty much? Is that a, is that a pretty good sample of your science fiction? Is there anything I, yeah. I kind of missed there?
1: No, it's it's actually kind of an atypical sample of my work as a whole because i do do mostly fantasy i haven't really done science fiction in a novel length context hard reboot is the longest science fiction story i've done um which is sort of interesting in my kind of career as a writer i started out when i was a a teen as a science fiction fan so my gateways into sff them were all sort of classic science fiction authors you know the the golden age sort of Heinlein and uh Clark and Asimov, especially I had, you know, Asimov short story collections and Bradbury short story collections and then sort of more modern writers like David Brin um, and Verna Vinga and a bunch of writers of that ilk. That was like that was 100 percent my jam when I was 14 um, and I came to fantasy somewhat later. But by the time I started writing my own stuff, um, I was kind of firmly in fantasy and that that was kind of where I wanted to go. Um, Partly guess I developed a really big interest in history, um, you know, fairly late, like around the end of college. And um, that it's easier to explore in fantasy in some ways. Um, Science fiction is a little harder in that respect. Um, So overall, um, it's a good sample of my science fiction writing, but that is kind of a minority of what I do as a whole. Although that said... In theory, I have a science fiction project that may or may not um, come about, you know, it's very tentative, but maybe next year that's one of the things I'm going to write, like a novel project, so we'll see.
2: So, I mean, yeah, so so in, in college you studied computer science and creative writing, and then mm-hmm. you worked in AI, and then you worked at Microsoft, I think. Yep. Uh, which is, yeah, is sort of more of a science fiction-oriented background. Right, like-
1: you'd think, Do you
2: feel like that background informs your fantasy or like if you had to do it over again, would you have gone in more of a history kind of direction?
1: Oh, no. I mean, I love computers and I love tech stuff. So, you know, just for practical reasons, I always thought that I was going to be a programmer with writing as a hobby, Um, you know, and I'm I'm lucky enough that I have, you know, I like programming and I'm pretty good at it. Uh, you know, good enough to get a job at least. And that is a skill that is pretty valuable in our society in a way that writing isn't always and stuff like history isn't always. Um, and so I always figured that would be my day job. Um, you know, the idea that I I could make enough money to live on as a writer was uh, kind of a shock to me when that happened. Um, and, you know, it was my day job for what, 10 years almost. Um Yeah. Just about 10 years. Um, and then, uh, so I don't think I'd do anything differently. No, I think I'm pretty happy with where that path ended up.
2: Do you, um, is any of your fantasy, does it draw on any of the AI or computer science stuff or is, are those just kind of two separate, um,
1: realms? I think, I think it does, although it's fairly subtle. Um, a lot of, of computer, stuff and especially sort of software engineering is about systems. Um, and a lot of the, the magic systems in the sort of harder fantasy stuff, which is most of what I write is, is kind of a hard magic system type of thing. Um, does have a kind of computery bent, sometimes more explicitly than others. Um, you know, I like to think of kind of underlying mechanisms for the fantasy that even if it never, that's one bit of world building that often doesn't make it onto the page. But if I understand it, I help it, I think it helps kind of maintain consistency. You know, in my first fantasy series, the Shadow Campaigns, one of the things that it explores is that there's the kind of underlying truth of the magic system, which I worked out. Um, and in a kind of vague way, but then all the different cultures who are exposed to it and learn to manipulate it do so with different ideas about what it actually is and how it works. Um, and for whatever reason, that feels like a very computery concept to me—that you have this kind of underlying reality, kind of, but like its reality is also sort of defined by how people use it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so so you've written,
2: you know, you'd written several fantasy series, and then Mm -hmm. in 2015, you published both The End of the War and Real. Mm -hmm. Did something happen in 2015 to get you to sort of get you to experiment with writing science fiction?
1: Uh, What really happened, to be honest, is that after my first book came out, um, well, technically, I had a couple of small press books before that, um, but Uh, my first book, The Thousand Names from a big publisher came out in uh, 2012, 2013. And I started getting invited to things um, and for short fiction. And I have never been much of a short fiction writer. Um, I really like reading short fiction and especially science fiction, short fiction. So like someone like Isaac Asimov, for example, I think that you know people talk about how great Foundation is and the iRobot novels and all that and they're they're good. I enjoy them, but I think reading his short stories is really where you get that feeling of how good a writer and how smart he is because his ability to sort of pack a complete concept into you know three thousand words five thousand words is amazing um but I never did much of that myself because I never really felt like. I was very good at it, um, that kind of science fictional stuff. Uh, but around that time, people started inviting me to things. So "Real" um, was written for an anthology called Press Start to Play about uh, sort of weird gaming things. Um, end of the War, I think I just wrote because I had the idea. Um, I don't think there was actually an invitation for that. But I also, I had... Sold several other short stories at that point to to anthologies and magazines, um, because you know people had heard of me finally, <laughs> um, which you know is uh, is the way the market works. Unfortunately, um, it's not great. It's very frustrating if you're the person no one has heard of. Um, you know, then you know there are many many unknown authors who write better short stories than me. So I kind of wish it didn't work that way, but that that's how it worked for me. Um, but anyway. What I found was that I could do uh, science fiction in a short format. I had never been able to, like, do it to my satisfaction in a novel, but I could do it in a short story. And so I started doing some science fiction stuff, which had always been kind of my interest. Um, It's still kind of a minority of what I write, but uh, it's much more of my uh, short fiction.
2: Yeah, and, and you sold uh, The End of the War to Asmos magazine, which I think had been an ambition of yours for for 20 years
1: yes. or something, right? The first story I ever wrote, which I wrote when I was maybe 15, um, I wrote it and I showed it to my dad and he thought it was really good. Um, he did this, what he said to me was, you know how when you do something we often tell you that it's good because we love you and, you know, we want to support you. And I said, yeah, you know, I understand that. And he's like, well, this isn't that, I think this is really good. <laughs> um, it was try. It's, it's funny. it's was just trying to get that across. Uh, but anyway, we sent it to Asimov's, but they didn't take it, which in retrospect is probably for the best. Um, but it sort of cemented um. Asimov's as like the market for science fiction for me, you know, no, no slight to the other uh magazines, but that was the one I read. Um, and so finally getting to sell something to them was was definitely a kind of like achievement.
2: So had you sent other stuff
1: there over the years? Not really, because I think what happened after that was, you know, at, I started out writing short fiction because it seemed more achievable, but Um, I rapidly figured out that I enjoyed writing longer stuff more. So I did, got into fanfic for a while and I did some like novel length fanfic, and then I started writing my own novels. So I didn't really go back to short fiction for many years. Um, And uh, it was only after people started asking me for it that I was like, oh, I'll try writing short fiction. And then I feel like I was like, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. You know, I can do this.
2: <laughs> so when you got invited to the press start to play anthology, um, mm-hmm. were you? Did, did it was John Joseph Adams edited that? Mm-hmm. Did 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 he know you were a gamer? I mean, was that sort of public yes. knowledge or?
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's it's been in my bio forever. So. Um, and uh, Daniel H. Wilson, I think we had met before that invite, because he lived in Portland, or maybe I'm getting the order confused, he lives in Portland now, he was the other editor on that anthology, um, and he had done Apocalypse, which was, you know, a very popular sort of robot uprising book, which is great, um, but yeah, I think um, I was introduced to John Joseph Adams through my agent, which, who we shared at the time, uh, Seth Fishman, I'm I'm not sure where John is now, but, um, but yeah, so he definitely knew that, that this sort of thing was my jam, basically.
2: Do you want to just say, say for listeners, like what, what actually is your, your gaming background?
1: Oh, I, you know, I'm a gamer from way back. Um, you know, I started in, in Dungeons and Dragons when I was probably 10. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. Um, although not in recent years. Um, I got into Magic the Gathering in you know junior high and played that through high school. And then I got um, super into like Warhammer and tabletop war games and historical mini games in college. Also a lot more D&D and tabletop role playing games at the time. Um, and then sort of concurrently to all that, we were always a video game family. I remember my dad bringing home uh, our first NES when I, I couldn't have been more than five or six. And we were like, just like blown away because he figured out how to make Mario go down the pipes. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we always had computers and console games at my house. And so I was I was a big player of that since the days of yore. Um, but yeah, the the tabletop stuff, these days I've gotten more into... Um, you know, what you think of as Euro games um, just because that's kind of the crowd we have out here and it requires a little less preparation and work overhead than doing a tabletop role-playing campaign. It's much easier to say, okay, games at my house, everybody show up than it is to, um, you know, put together a a role-playing game where you get the same people together week after week to run a campaign. Um, So you know my interests have shifted over the years but but yeah that's the, my house is full of gaming stuff
2: <laughs> i mean i'm not a huge war gamer or strategy gamer but um uh, in the story um the end of the war it, it reminds me a lot of starcraft or something like that is that inaccurate
1: yeah. uh, absolutely it, specifically it's probably based most closely on a uh a rts so sort of similar to starcraft called total annihilation that came out jesus i don't know when that came out in 1997 1998 um that i was just in love with and played a million billion hours of um and it features a similar conceit where you have your player character is like a giant robot with a constructor beam and you sort of build a self bootstrapping factory that in turn builds more smaller robots to go out and fight for you um and so, you know, that was just a game It didn't have like a lot of backstory or lore, but I kind of wanted to put together, I mean, the, the basic concepts that became that story were putting together both a situation where it sort of worked that way tactically, but also where the, the quote unquote players on either side had a similar kind of relationship to the players of online games where they can talk to each other and they're like not super in danger, even though they're having a war so they can have like kind of casual conversations. So how much
2: time did you spend? Cause, cause the, in the story, there's all these different unit types that sound really cool. Yeah. And did you, did you spend much, how much time did you spend kind of coming up with the different uh, pieces? No, that,
1: it's definitely just like, add stuff as needed <laughs> just make it up as you go along I, d- I tend to like do a draft where I just go through and either like make stuff up or put in like add stuff later here and then go through and smooth it out in a second pass um so because I you know I like to, to sort of flow as a draft but I do that rather than prepping everything in advance just because it means there's less to do you don't end up prepping a lot of material that you don't use I also, I mean, partially that's just laziness um, or efficiency, as I like to say. (laughs) Um, Partially, though, I'm aware of a tendency, like if you do a ton of world building and prep, the temptation is always to put that on the page, even if it's not necessary for the story. Um, And that can be hard to fight. uh, And it can really weaken a story to have a bunch of really sort of unnecessary world building so i often find it's easier to figure out what you need in terms of world building in advance like right by writing the story first and then go through and fill it back in later um because then you won't find yourself tempted to include you know the complete genealogy of the hero and a long (laughs) digression about the city state's political history or whatever just because you spent a lot of time coming up with it
2: Yeah, How about this story real, the one that was in the the actual video game anthology? Do you remember how Mm -hmm. you came up with the idea for that?
1: That one uh, began life as Sailor Moon fan fiction. (laughs) 100%. Um, Kind of. It was a story that I wrote back in my fan fiction days. Um, And I should say, none of the actual words in the fan fiction turned into this story, because I just sat down and wrote it again. But the basic concept I came up with back in my fanfiction days, and it never really went anywhere because it wasn't really fanfiction. You know, it was about a world in, you know, a person in the real world who sees what he thinks is a game slash TV show bleeding into the real world. Um, but the basic concept and the the kind of ending stinger is all from that old story um, that I kind of sort of genericized it a little so it's not actually based on any particular work of fiction anymore um because i you know i was reading it again and i'm like it doesn't really need it um you know we all know what these things are like even if it's not like some specific work um so so yeah that was a good example of like repurposing an old story and just like not even like taking any of the the you know, the not copying any of the words from one document to another, but just taking another crack at a concept, I guess is what I want to say. Um, and uh, doing it, you know, better, I hope. Hmm. I hope that this version is better than the fan fiction version.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, and the basic premise is that these people create a game where you're using your phone and you can sort of see the, the demonic invasion if you look through mm-hmm. this app on your phone. And then it becomes a question of wait—is are there is there an actual demonic invasion after all? Um, right. But but when one of the characters is describing this, he said, "One of the characters who creates created the game. He says we were hardly the first either. Remember that Halo thing in the states in that movie." Yeah. What is what is that a
1: reference to? The Halo thing is a reference to the the I Love Bees, which was an early um, ARG. Uh, the idea is. Um, They ran these kind of like mystery um, games. I didn't actually play any of this. So this is all kind of secondhand. So apologies if I'm getting it wrong. But basically there were were websites um, that you could, that where something was subtly wrong and you had to figure it out um, and you could kind of like find clues in various places. But then there were also sort of real world things that they had set up. So you'd go to a specific place and there'd be a message or you'd call a phone number and there'd be a message or something like that. Um, and, you know, figuring out these things became like a big community effort. Um, and there's been many, many games like that since the, I love bees one is the first that I remember. Um, and it was connected to the original halo or maybe halo two. I forget. Um as a marketing campaign. And a lot of them have ended up being marketing campaigns. So when it talks about, oh, that movie, that's just kind of a generic like, cause they've done these for various sort of sci-fi or spy movies, whereas there's like a real world, you know, puzzle game associated with them.
2: So how did, I don't know if you, you would know this, but how did the, the ARG tie into the halo universe? Cause that's such a sort of outer space aliens, I, far future kind of thing.
1: I honestly don't know. <laughs> You'd have to look it up. Um, like I could look on Wikipedia and tell you, but (laughs) I only was peripherally exposed to it by some of my friends who were into it. I honestly got the sense that the Halo tie-in, and this is just purely based on listening to what my friends say, so maybe it's not general opinion, was kind of a letdown that, like, they did this, this whole, the game was really well-constructed and clever, and ultimately was all just sort of in the service of, like, hey, go buy Halo. and uh, people were kind of disappointed by that—that that there wasn't sort of a more clever thing to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something about the AIs, I think. There was some sort of rogue AI thing going on.
2: Yeah, that does. I can see that being kind of a letdown if you put a lot of time into that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a problem when these things are financed basically as marketing campaigns, is that you ultimately. They have to serve their purposes, marketing campaigns. No one is going to pay you a bunch of money to run a game for free for, you know, thousands of people on the Internet uh, for nothing, for no reason. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, And then how about this? This third short story I read, it's called Amara Kells Rules for TIE Pilot Survival Probably. So how did that story come about?
1: That was a lot of fun. Um, it has, I love Star Wars. That, that's the first the the first takeaway here. I've always loved Star Wars. I've gotten super into Star Wars. I read a bunch of the old EU stuff. I've you know been into the whole new universe. Um, everything is great, um, and I've always wanted to write Star Wars stuff, um, and uh, I kept pestering my agent to try and make that happen, um, and he in turn would pester the people who decide you know what these who does these things and they were like well you know we're doing this anthology you know why don't you write us a story um and um i love the the space combat in star wars and especially the you know the kind of tie fighters have always fascinated me since they seem so terrible in a lot of the movies um but like somebody has to fly those things apparently um and so And I had gotten into really into the X Wing miniatures game. Um, There's a with uh, which is, you know, just a X Wings versus TIE fighters, you know, game you play on a tabletop. Um, And that had expanded on the lore a little bit. And so I kind of wanted to dive into that in a short story. So when they told me to do one from Empire Strikes Back, this is kind of what I came up with uh, as a TIE fighter pilot story.
2: Right. And the anthology is called from a certain point of view. So I guess it's supposed to be from unconventional points of view from in the Star Wars universe or.
1: Yeah, they, they did one for a new hope. And this is the one for empire out on the 40th anniversary of the release of the movies. And the idea is to just show points of view of characters in these movies who are not the main character and sort of any sort of intersection of story from their perspectives. Um, and, uh, it, the first one was really fun. You know, I read a lot of those stories. And so the second one, uh, I was really glad to get a chance to be a part of it. It was a really fun challenge.
2: How much of the details in the story, like how much of, um, like, yeah, how much of the details in the story are kind of star Wars canon and how much th- that already existed and how much did you invent
1: for the story? I invented most of it. I think, um, basically the way it works is I sent off a kind of basic outline of what I wanted to do to get approved by the powers that be at Lucasfilm. And they did. And then I wrote the story. And then, you know, after going over it with the, the editor, who's actually a Delray um, they sent it off to Lucasfilm to get, you know, yes and no on various things. So it's more just kind of like you make stuff up and then kind of submit it to whoever makes decisions on these things. Um And I use like the wiki a lot and, you know, various other things to kind of, you know, obviously I don't want them to say no to a bunch of my stuff. So I sort of try to keep it in line with with their traditional things. Um, But, yeah, a lot of it is is just sort of stuff I came up with and said, hey, can we do this? And they were like, sure. Because
2: I really like so this is the, the Empire's Rationale. You know, because I think just from a narrative standpoint, the reason that the TIE fighters get blown up so easily is because you want the good guys to be blowing up bad guys all the time. Um, But then you have to explain that. And and you say, well, well, and their rationale is basically like, well, we're just going to make as many of these ships as cheaply as we can and throw them at the enemy in big waves. And we're the Mm -hmm. Empire and they're not. So we're just going to win on on the sheer numbers. Um, And is is that something that you came up with or was that like more ahead of time?
1: I think that is kind of ascended fanon. I think that's something that like fans and eventually like extended universe authors came up with to explain why the empire has these basically pretty crappy ships, um, as their frontline fighters, that it's this kind of like, you know, we will drown them with our dead thing. And then that got written into the canon later on. Um, at least into the novels and stuff. I don't think they've ever actually said that in the movies. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a lot of it is like people sort of trying to justify what we see in the films, um, and sort of make that work. You know, the, the X-Wings have shields and the TIE fighters don't and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, so, so these are the rules from the story. It's like, don't get attached, don't be a hero, don't go at them head-on, learn to love your machine, and never eject. Um, yes. Is there anything you want to say about any of those, anything interesting behind well, the scenes, things about any of those rules?
1: I just like it because the the guys it, who fly these machines, you know, especially... These are conscripts basically, right? This is, you know, this is a conscript empire. And so these are people who didn't really sign up for this, who were drafted into fighting in a galactic war. You know, that's how you you run a galactic empire. Um but they also have a very effective kind of propaganda apparatus. They must, because one of the things we see about the tie fighters in the movies is that they're like almost suicidally reckless they're always flying into objects in their haste to pursue our heroes um or like diving into spaces that are not big enough for them <laughs> um and so i feel like what they have is a is this kind of like sort of over indoctrination um and so i really wanted to do the perspective of someone who had kind of seen through that and was like done with this bullshit and so her rules are all very much about, like, you know, let the other guys be the ones who fly into the asteroids if you want to live through a tour of duty. So
2: when you work through this whole thought process of, you know, oh, these are probably a lot of them conscripts, a lot of them probably, you know, really love each other, et cetera, does that make it weird to go back and watch the movies where you're watching the
1: Thai fighters just get blown up all the time? Sometimes. I mean, I feel like you can do that with almost any movie, though. Like, one of the big like conceits of PG-13 action movies I would say so like Star Wars but also like the whole Marvel universe and whatever is this fantasy of consequence free violence right and so like nobody really wants to be reminded that like all the guys that who get shot or punched or thrown off a bridge or whatever during uh, these action movies are people. That's like not part of the fun. Um, they're not. They're not like sometimes they're literally not people because they're robots or whatever. Um, but often they're just guys in face masks. But like that's why they're in face masks, right? They're, that's the reason that when when the rebels are attacking the Death Star, we can see all the rebels' faces and the Tie Fighter guys are all wearing masks, and it's so that we can have this fantasy of consequence-free violence.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like I might have heard that part of the reason that they had the battle droids in the prequels, because was was exact, for exactly that reason that George Lucas started thinking about, maybe yeah. just make the bad guys robots.
1: Well, he started to be, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but this is what they say, is that he started to be uncomfortable with the idea that our heroes were just going to be slaughtering, you know, dozens of people, um, you know, our Jedi Knights you know, true blue heroes. Um, It kind of falls apart a little, but you know that I respect the idea.
2: Yeah. Did
1: you, I was just curious
2: since you're a gamer, did you ever play the TIE fighter game from the uh, nineties? I love
1: those games. I wish someone would re would do a new one. I know they did star Wars squadrons for, uh, for the consoles, but I didn't like it. Um, and, uh, I'm I'm waiting for someone to do, you know, Modern X-Wing versus Tie Fighter.
2: Yeah, it was so cool cuz it had a really good story, you know, and there's like, yes. you know, you get your mission briefing and then there's the like creepy guy in the robe or whatever who gives you the secret optional missions and stuff and it you really felt like uh you were a real Tie Fighter pilot.
1: No, it was a lot of fun. You know, the Star Wars video games, some of them have been so great. You know, it's obviously, you know, many different companies have made them, so there's there's sort of varying qualities, but um like those or some of the you know the the MMO the old republic some of the stuff like the quests in there have some of the like most fun star wars stories ever um in a way it's sort of a shame because like i this is a, somewhat of a digression but it's always sad to me when a really great story is kind of trapped inside an unplayably old video game i mean mm-hmm. i know people get into retro games but like the majority of people Aren't going to pick up a 15 year old game, there's a much bigger obstacle than if you were like watching a 15 year old movie. You know, I could sit an eight year old down and they could watch the Star Wars movie and get something out of it, but they're not going to play, you know, Knights of the Old Republic.
2: I mean, the only the, the thing that's weird about the TIE Fighter game is that I mean, it's a great game, but you know, you go out on your TIE Fighter and you're like, I just blew up 25 X Wings, like, and yeah. this is fun, but it seems a little out of, uh, out of war for this uh, universe.
1: Yes. That I feel like I, I forget how they did it, but I feel like they'd have to um get you out of the stock tie fighter film quickly <laughs> in order for that to make any sense. Uh you know and that's in fact, you know a lot of the like fancier variants of the tie fighter that that are now kind of semi canon and get used in the X-Wing miniatures game all come from uh the X-wing versus tie fighter game like the tie defenders and the the cloaking ones um there's actually a bunch of X-wing versus tie fighter nods in that story too or sorry excuse me there are a lot of um X-wing miniature game nods in that story some of which originally date back to the X-wing vs. tie fighter game uh, so so what would be an example um the character of howlrunner for example is is an X-wing pilot or rather a TIE fighter pilot in the X-Wing game. And she uh, has the way she behaves in the story is related to her <laughs> mechanical abilities. You know, it's just something I put in there because, you know, I, I looked through the wiki and no one was using the character. And so I asked Lucasfilm, like, Hey, can I do this? And we <laughs> no one cares.
2: That's really cool. Um, all right. So we're pretty much out of time. So I guess do you have just any other, uh, any other final thoughts or any other projects that you want to let people know about?
1: Um, well, my, so my next thing is, um, well, I have one project that I can't announce yet. That's really annoying, actually. I can't talk about it yet, but I have a secret project that will be coming out sometime this year, but my next current project is, uh, Blood of the Chosen, which is the sequel to my, uh, post-apocalyptic fantasy kind of, it's a post-fantasy apocalypse, I guess I would call it, um, Ashes of the Sun, uh. Is coming out in October, and I'm really excited about that. Um, we have some uh, great work and great covers, um, so uh, look that up and check that series out. And see what, if you like it. What does that mean, post fantasy
2: apocalypse?
1: Um, it's a the 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 elevator pitch is it's a a world in which there was a very high fantasy society um, that subsequently collapsed. Um, Which is a pretty common theme in fantasy novels, the idea that a past civilization has come crashing down. Uh, But often the remnants of the past civilization are sort of hidden away in ruins or whatever in a sort of Tolkienian way. Um, And what I wanted was something more like Mad Max. So this is a, a high fantasy society, you know, equivalent to or superior to present day Earth that has collapsed and their junk is just Everywhere, so these the the successors are sort of living in a world of scavenged pieces,
2: yeah, that sounds super cool, yeah, and I am also very curious to hear about that secret project, so maybe if you're listening to this in the future, you can go on Twitter or something, find out what that is.
1: yes, I'm on Twitter at, at Django Wexler, and that's always a good place to you know find updates or ask me questions about anything. Feel free. Um, you can also find me on Facebook at uh, author Django Wexler, but I'm sort of less on that. Twitter has become my addiction. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, all right, cool. So let's wrap things up there. So we have been speaking with Django Wexler about his new novella,
0: Hard Reboot. So Django, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Django Wexler for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreoncom geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you
1: next time. The Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show,